the abortion fight is no longer just about undoing Roe versus Wade. It's about overruling democracy itself. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, that people don't feel they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig- dignity of man. At last, the religious extremist forces, which have so long been determined to shut down reproductive rights, have a case before the Supreme Court. Our guest today writes, The court's decision to take Dobbs certainly suggests that Roe is not long for this world. And as if that weren't bad enough, it's all part of a much broader assault on democracy itself— Packing the courts with right-wing activist judges is part of their goal of replacing democracy and a Republican form of government with religious nationalism. This is not hyperbole. Yes, they've made war on women's rights to control their own bodies for decades, but now it's more than that. In a concerted effort to make an end run around the normal exercise of the democratic legislative process, which is how America's founders intended us to rule ourselves, they have been quietly but steadily focused on avoiding scrutiny by stuffing our justice system with far-right judicial appointments. Of course, Donald Trump was used effectively to make this anti-democratic scheme reality. As our guest today, law professor Mary Ziegler writes in The Atlantic, the abortion fight has never been about just Roe versus Wade. Mary Ziegler, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thanks for having me. Mary Ziegler is professor at the Florida State University College of Law. She's the author of Abortion and the Law in America, Roe versus Wade to the Present. She's one of the world's leading authorities on the legal history of the American abortion debate. Her many articles have appeared in leading law reviews, and her work on abortion has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, CNN, L.A. Times, New York Daily News, and BBC History magazine. She often shares her expertise with news outlets in the United States and around the world. And her three books offer a kaleidoscopic view of the history of American abortion law and politics. Her first, After Roe, The Lost History of the Abortion Debate. Her second book is Beyond Abortion, Roe versus Wade and the Fight for Privacy Studies at the, uh, the Forgotten Legacy of Roe in Debates about Sexual Liberty, Gay and Lesbian Rights, the Treatment of the Mentally Ill, Consumer Rights, Data Privacy, and the Right to Die. See, it all comes together. Her most recent book, Abortion and the Law in America, Roe versus Wade to the Present, offers a comprehensive legal history of the abortion debate from the recognition of the right to choose to the likely undoing of Roe today. The book documents a consequential shift in terms of the abortion debate. Well, this is uh, something I've been active in for a long time. 
on that. I'll never forget, it was 1986, when the head of the state National Abortion Rights Action League, Peg Doby, and I were making phone calls. And I said to her, the issue is really resolved, isn't it? Choice is solid. She cautioned me that it was actually not. Boy, was I wrong. Here we are, close to 40 years later. The anti-choice side never gave up. And in fact, they have very recently morphed into a new, much larger assault on freedom in general. This year, in May 2021, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case that could result in overturning the 1973 landmark decision Roe v. Wade, which enshrined reproductive rights. Mary, please tell us about the Mississippi case, Dodds versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. What about this case and this court uh, resulted in the justices agreeing to hear it? So uh, the case, Dodds, involves a kind of a fairly unique Mississippi law um, that bans abortion at 15 weeks gestation. Um, the reason I say it's unique is that the Mississippi takes the position that fetal pain is possible at 15 weeks. Most other states with similar abortion restrictions place that at 20 weeks. Most science places fetal pain around 29 or 30 weeks. But what's the most significant about Mississippi's law is that 15 weeks is well before the point of fetal viability. Right which is when survival is possible outside of the womb. And really, since 1973, the Supreme Court has said that you can't ban abortion outright before viability. So for the court to uphold the Mississippi law, it's either going to have to get rid of the the viability line Mm. or get rid of Roe v. Wade entirely. So this is not a case where the court can kind of nibble around the edges and uphold the law. It has to do something big if it wants to uphold the law. And there's something very different about this Supreme Court, the nine members, three justices, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, have all said, in one form or another, in opinions, that they think the court got it wrong on abortion. Now we have two more justices who were appointed by Donald Trump, who have not said directly that I know of, but are clearly anti-choice. Does the court saying they're taking this case necessarily mean they're going to use this case to overturn Roe? Well, I mean, necessarily is probably true strong, right? Because anyone who's been following abortion politics knows that there's an element of unpredictability. The last time we thought the court was going to reverse Roe was in the early 90s, and ultimately three Republican nominees uh, declined when they had the opportunity. So I think it's you can never say never. But yeah, we have these conservatives, the types of conservatives that have been placed on the court, particularly by Donald Trump, but also um, the other members of the court who've been there longer, like Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito, are not the same kinds of conservative justice that were around Mm -hmm. in the early 90s. They've been selected in no small part because they think Roe is wrongly decided. And um, while we don't have a ton of, of data points on Trump's nominees, I mean, Amy Coney Barrett has said, almost nothing about abortion since being on the court. Uh, It's so it's hard to know for sure, but we have reason to believe that conservatives chose these people to overturn Roe. And we don't have any real reason to expect that those expectations won't be fulfilled. So precedent thus far has drawn the line at fetal viability, or as you mentioned, uh, the idea of fetal pain. 
This Mississippi law bans abortion, as you said, at week 15, well before viability. Could the court, the Supreme Court, uphold Roe versus Wade, but also, also uphold the 15-week ban? Can that work together? I think it depends on what you mean by Roe v. Wade. So uh, the court has proven pretty flexible in the past, I mean, to put it kind of gently about redefining Roe. So in 1992, the court totally rewrote the rules that would apply to abortion restrictions and their constitutionality and said the old rules, the old trimester framework in Roe, which made it hard to pass any restrictions in the early in pregnancy, that that could go and that there are only two essential ingredients in abortion law, the idea of a right to choose and fetal viability. So it's conceivable that the court could say viability isn't essential anymore either. There's still a right to choose and that Mississippi's law is not unduly burdensome. The more interesting question if the court did that would be, you know, what what line do they draw? Do they just say, we're going to, you know, leave it for another day and kick the can down the road? Mississippi's line is okay. We're not going to weigh in on heartbeat bills. Or do they start actually saying, here's the new line. And, it, you know, it's quite possible there'll be no limit. We just don't know. Wow. But it is certainly a, a, an interesting court these days. And the anti-choice crowd, from what I've observed over these past 40 years or so, uh, has they used to base a lot of their argument on the premise that this issue is something that the people ought to decide about, that Roe was inappropriate, what they call judicial activism, judicial fiat, where, where it should be, according to them, or how it used to be, an issue that state legislatures should decide, that the citizens should have the power, not the unelected courts, as they so often mm -hmm. say. As you say, within the anti-abortion rights movement, there's not so much talk about democracy anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and there. I mean, it's worth saying, right? The talk of democracy. I'm a historian, so I'm I'm inclined to see this through a historical lens. Excellent. And if you know anything about the right to life movement, it's all there in the name, right? It's not the states' rights movement. <laughs> it's not the states can decide for themselves movement. If you are opposed to abortion, think abortion is murder, right? Yes. You think abortion is murder in California. You think abortion is murder in New York. You don't think it's acceptable to let states to decide for themselves any more than it would be okay if New York legalized murder. No one would think that was all right. Hmm. So the democracy arguments came into play in the 80s, but, but both because it was clear the fetal rights arguments weren't working, and because it seemed that that was a better way to shore up a partnership with the GOP and ship away at Roe. But it's never been about democracy, really. And now that we have a conservative supermajority on the court, you're beginning to see abortion opponents say in public what they've been saying privately to one another for decades, which is that the, the end goal is a nationwide abortion ban, probably a nationwide abortion ban imposed by the Supreme Court, which is, of course, the irony, right, for a movement that's been talking about how the court shouldn't impose its will on the people now that the court might impose its will in a direction that abortion opponents like, they're not so critical of that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you use the word uh, conservative, uh, you know, a number of times, and this may be just my issue. To me, conservative means conserving 
what we value, traditional values. I, I know Republicans have always called themselves conservative, but by going against traditional values, it strikes me that the right wing, I mean, I always feel better talking about these far-right people as right-wing and not necessarily conservative. But that's that may mm-hmm. be uh, splitting hairs. I don't know. The- well, I think it's, it's probably also fair to say that abortion opponents are, I mean, they're aligned with conservatives, but most of them, not all of them, but most of them are are single-issue advocates, yes. right? So to some degree, calling them conservatives doesn't really capture what's going on because they don't entirely care about the rest of what the Republican Party is doing. And so there, it's it's a sort of a partnership of convenience more than a partnership of ideas, really in both directions, right? I mean, I think there are certainly conservative yeah. or right-leaning Christians in the GOP who support what the anti-abortion movement is doing, but there have always been libertarians who are a little uncomfortable with the yes. idea, for example, of a nationwide abortion ban. So one thing that we should stay tuned for is if the court overturns Roe and we move on to a debate about, you know, should there be the Supreme Court be imposing fetal rights, that might expose some fractures in the right because everyone has agreed. It's easy to get libertarians to say, oh, judicial activism is bad. It's easy to get Christian conservatives to say judicial activism is bad. But agreeing on what actually should come next may be harder. Uh, It will be interesting to see. Well, hopefully we won't because I frankly support right to choose. (laughs) The vast majority of people do. Not that that matters particularly to the uh, right-wing anti-choice people. For those who may have just tuned in, our guest today is law professor Mary Ziegler, who has written an article in The Atlantic. The abortion fight has never been about just Roe versus Wade. She's a uh, combination of two of my favorite uh, things, history and law. I love them both. And it's so important to think with history and to understand the law. Now, the argument which legalized reproductive rights in 1973 Supreme Court decision was a constitutional right of privacy. I am not an expert on the Constitution, but I don't believe the word privacy is in the Constitution. Was the basis of privacy a strong enough basis to make the Roe decision forever solid, or by recognizing the right to end a pregnancy under privacy, did the court in so doing reject the case for personhood under the 14th Amendment? There's a lot in that question, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's sort of two things, I think, implicit in the question of, you know, was it bad for the court to rely on privacy? One is, you know, was the court's opinion as convincing as it could have been to other lawyers and judges. And the second is, you know, would it really have mattered to what's going on now if the court had written Roe differently? So I'll answer those in order. I think, yes, it was not the most convincing decision in terms of its reasoning. It's been, there's been almost like a cottage industry within the legal academy Mm. of rewriting Roe, like reframing Roe, better arguments for us, many of them linking back to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's idea that this should have been about sex discrimination and equal protection. But I I think it's a mistake to believe that a better reasoned row would have been less divisive if the result had been the same. That is to say, if the court recognized any kind of right to abortion based on anything. Um, Because ultimately, 
as I wrote in the Atlantic piece and elsewhere, for abortion opponents, this is about a right to life. And so anything short of that would have produced some kind of backlash for them. And it was easier for them to complain about Roe when it had these weaknesses. But Mm. ultimately, they were upset about the outcome. They weren't upset about the reasoning. Mm. But they want to make the strongest case. They want to win. Everybody wants to win their case. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What what about the legal argument that that you brought up, cited by John Finnis, a professor emeritus at the University of Notre Dame, which argues that fetal rights ought to be protected by the courts under the 14th Amendment, which we referred to earlier. Mm -hmm. Is there a strong legal argument that equal protection and due process under the law must apply to developing fetuses. Is there a strong legal argument for that? Well, I think there's been a fight um, really on the right about whether Finnis's argument holds water, and some conservatives don't think it does. So historically, the, the pitch was the 14th Amendment, even if the 14th Amendment wasn't originally intended to cover fetuses that or unborn children, that uh, it would, you know, that its meaning had evolved over time as, you know, if science had progressed and ultrasounds had become available, it was sort of a, sort of a living constitution argument, if you will. Um, then more recently, you've seen uh, right-to-life theorists like Joshua Craddock, who's a fellow at an institute and was a former student at Harvard Law School, arguing that the framers of the 14th Amendment intended to include fetuses or unborn children within the meaning of person. And they rely on lots of different things, but including the fact that at the time the 14th Amendment was became part of the Constitution, that was just around the time states were starting to criminalize abortion. But I, I don't think I don't think it's a ridiculous argument because anything dealing with the intentions of the framers is often in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's one of the, the criticisms of originalism is that, Oof. you know, a, a decent historian can find evidence one way or another. Um, there have been conservatives, including Ed Whelan, who's uh, associated with the National Review and other places, um, arguing that the Craddock's argument doesn't really work. So I think it's it's telling that even some people who sympathize with Craddock's objectives don't agree with this argument. But I mean, there's enough there that a court that wanted to go down that road certainly could. Well, and that's one thing about the law and the intent. As a a person who worked in a law factory, i.e. the New Hampshire State Senate, oftentimes when cases went before different courts, they would ask the legislators what their original intent was. In this case, these guys have been dead for a long, long time. But the, four, <laughs> the the 14th Amendment came in in the, what, mid to late uh, 19th century. What was the actual intent of the 14th Amendment? Well, the easiest goal to discern for the 14th Amendment was to expand rights available to free people of color who'd formerly been enslaved, right? Yes. So the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are often referred to as part of the second founding the idea being that we needed to kind of have a, a second constitutional moment because the first time we had denied the humanity of people of African origin, slavery was quite literally part of the Constitution. So the 13th, 14th, mm. and 15th Amendments abolished slavery, gave Black people the right to vote, 
Um, and so if you, really, I mean, the cleanest, <laughs> most obvious thing would be to say that the people who wrote the 14th Amendment were probably not thinking about abortion yep. at all, which is why the report didn't say anything about that and why people like Whelan think, you know, relying on what the framers of the 14th Amendment were doing is, is not a great idea. The anti-choice side has long said, quote, abortion stops a beating heart and therefore it is murder. I read recently mm -hmm. that a heartbeat can be detected in an organism in a Petri dish. Hearts can mm -hmm. beat in brain-dead people. Given this, how possible is it that the Supreme Court justices could apply the 14th Amendment? Well, I, I think, you know, do I think the Supreme Court is going to uphold? Well, I mean, if a recognized person in the 14th Amendment soon? No, I don't. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think there will be five votes for that yet. I think it, could the Supreme Court or uphold a heartbeat vote or and overturn Roe? Absolutely. But I think it's there's a sort of there are different types of conservative justice, right? And a lot of the conservatives, not all of them, but some of them who are currently on the court, kind of came up in the Reagan Bush years and subscribed to a particular vision of constitutional interpretation. Which, you know, holds that Roe was an anti-democratic decision and that there was no right to abortion in the Constitution. The Constitution didn't have anything to say about abortion. But I don't know if those people would necessarily vote for personhood. Um, I'm thinking particularly of um, Brett Kavanaugh, who I think is probably one of, if not the deciding votes on abortion. Mm. So I think if that happens, if we're going to see a push toward recognition of fetal rights, We'd be looking at that more, you know, years down the road. And I think even the overturning of Roe might take a little bit of time, too. Mm -hmm. Brett Kavanaugh, that, I, I want to explore that further. Did, did he, you have reason to think he would not buy into the 14th Amendment protecting a fetus? Is that, did I hear that right? Well, I think, I think John Roberts and Kavanaugh, in different ways and to differing degrees, um, care about their public image. Mm -hmm. So Kavanaugh, while he's conservative, is a member of the illegal elite, right? He used to teach at Yale Law School. Even when he writes conservative opinions, he sort of throws progressives a bone pretty much all the time, right? Mm. So just to give you an example, this summer, last summer rather, when uh, the court held that Title VII protects uh, LGBTIQ employees from discrimination, uh, he, Justice Kavanaugh dissented from that. But then wrote separately to say, you know, I, I admire the courage of, you know, LGBTIQ employees facing discrimination and they're to be, you know, applauded and whatever. So while he was saying that, they, that employers could discriminate against them, he also didn't want to come across as the bad guy or an extremist. So it's hard for me to imagine. And there's there's lots of evidence of Kavanaugh doing that a lot. Hmm. So while I could totally see him overturning Roe. I don't know if Kavanaugh wants to be thought of as a sort of particularly out there conservative justice. Hmm. And I think it would feel differently to him and probably to the public if the Supreme Court is saying, OK, you can't have a legal abortion in, in California or New York. Then it would to say the states can do whatever they want, because to some degree, the states are already doing yes. quite different things when it comes to abortion. So it would be less of a shock to the system. Um, it is interesting to me how 
states in recent years have cracked down on abortion rights in various different uh, uh, ways and different forms. Uh, I've been a little bit surprised that they could do that, but I guess this will soon be tested in the uh, in the Supreme Court. And you talk about caring about what the public thinks. A lot of people, I think, figure, well, the court is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, and they don't care about what the public thinks. Oh, they do? Absolutely. There's so many cases where, you know, the, the vast majority, I think, thinks that the court members, the justices, don't care about what the public thinks. But I think about, uh, for example, the case with regard to Muhammad Ali, who I think was then known as Cassius mm-hmm. Clay. That public opinion mattered, and they changed uh, their their vote on that. It does absolutely matter that we are not without power, even when it comes to the Supreme Court. Now, as we said earlier, it used to be that the argument of the of the anti-choice right was that, well, it ought to be up to the states. The public opinion ought to rule. You cite New Hampshire, uh, New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg, author of the book King- Kingdom Coming, who noted with concern what she calls the authoritarian turn in anti-abortion rights advocacy. What did she say about that? She knows her stuff about uh, the uh, power of the right-wing evangelicals. Yeah, I mean, I think that what she was noticing was um, that there was uh, this turn away from arguments about, um, you know, states' rights and democracy toward a more direct um, demand for uh, restrictions on abortion. And I think... um, the issue, though, I, I think, and what I what I thought when I read her column was that while this is true, it's it's not new, right? I mean, so calling it a turn is is a little bit misleading. Insofar as what I think really is going on is more um, that the movement thinks it can get what it wants now, as opposed to having to settle for a second best solution, and is now asking for everything yeah. as opposed to uh, to compromising interesting and yeah they've been at this for a long long time and and focusing on overturning roe for yeah, ever since 1973 and as you write the abortion debate has never been about just roe it's never been about letting a popular majority have a say never been about letting a popular majority have it say. The court, I don't think, I mean, there have been various different cases that are around the edges that have enabled the uh, anti-choice people to have, you know, a little bite of the apple, but second best. What's new about this moment? Is it the, the content of the case in Mississippi, or is it more the political power of the, what I consider far right, or just the membership of the court itself what's what's new about this moment well there there are probably a few different things um that i asked um or in what you asked so i think the most salient is just who's on the court so i think when you saw brett kavanaugh get nominated you had a wave of heartbeat bills when you saw amy tony barrett get confirmed you had another wave of heartbeat bills and absolute bans and so what's happening in part is that state lawmakers who wanted to ban abortion all along now think they can ban abortion. 
So most of this is about um, optimism about the composition of the current Supreme Court. Politics have changed too, though, in the sense that there are fewer centrists in the GOP, particularly in state politics versus national politics. So if you're in the Alabama legislature, the Mississippi legislature, the North Dakota legislature, like there's not really much blowback you're going to face if you ban all abortions because of political polarization, because of gerrymandering, because of the influence of Trump on the GOP. So there's also more of a willingness to pass these bills. But I think that's probably been true for a few years. So I think the fact that we're seeing them now is mostly about the Supreme Court. Yeah, and the, the, the influence of Trump on the Republican Party just, it boggles my mind. I, I, I just, uh, I mean, it's really extreme. I mean, I, I remember uh, uh, George Wallace being considered an extremist, and, you know, he certainly was for a time on race. But uh, I mean, Trump was clearly a racist, and now that's the Republican Party. It just... It's it's fascinating to me. I don't know how it's going to survive if it's going to go the Trump way or the uh, Liz Cheney way, but that's of course another issue. Um, and legal precedent has, throughout most of American history, been solidly respected in the courts. I think, and I do worry very much about this. I get the sense that the Trump-appointed justices, along with some others, maybe kind of drooling at the prospect of actually rejecting legal precedent and making a name for themselves by going against legal precedent. Can we expect the so-called conservatives in the court to display their conservative credentials and respect precedent? What do, what do you think about that? Well, I think, I mean, part of, so there, there's some, I mean, I think there has definitely been historically some respect for precedent, but I think we shouldn't overstate it either because it's, there's always been a power on the part of the courts to overturn to some decisions, right? Usually it's supposed to be the case that the decisions are not just wrong, but are, are also, you know, uniquely bad in some way. Either they're unworkable or no one relied on them or they're, um, you know, there's some sort of plus factor weighing in favor of overruling. And all of that stuff is squishy enough that both liberals and conservatives have sometimes found ways to overturn things, but that's usually a fairly big deal. And it's especially a big deal when it's a decision like Roe where everyone is paying attention, right? I think it's fair to say that most of the time when the Supreme Court overturns something, the only people who know are people like me, right? (laughs) Normal people have no idea what the Supreme Court is doing 99% of the time. Um, I think that said, so it would be a bigger deal to overturn something like Roe in particularly because most Americans would know and care what had happened. That said, there's also been a pretty long-standing campaign among abortion opponents to not just say Roe is wrong, but to look at all the sorts of things the Supreme Court cares about when it comes to precedent and give them an out, basically, mm. a way to say that Roe is the kind of precedent that we can get rid of. What I would expect the Supreme Court to do, because the Supreme Court recognizes that precedent is a hurdle, is not to overturn Roe immediately in the Dobbs case, which would come down likely in June of 2022, but to use Dobbs and maybe one other case to sort of make the argument to the American public that Roe is not a sound precedent, that Roe created problems, and then you know get around to overturning Roe 
a year or two later, maybe in 2023, which would be the 50th anniversary of the decision, uh-huh. maybe 2024. But I, I don't see that as it, it precedent's never been an insurmountable obstacle. And it's even less so with this sport. Mm. And I, I, I do wonder if there may be some inclination on the part of some of the new Trump appointees to to look bold and specifically to to show the general public that you're right in paying much attention that yeah they can overturn uh, precedent the precedent doesn't hold them back that you know I mean a lot of the Trumpists would love that kind of thing you know to to shake things up that's what Trump uh, got elected on unfortunately mm-hmm. uh, do you see evidence that that they're chomping at the bit to you know take on precedent in general. In a way, yeah, I think I think there are lots of areas, and I think it depends on who you're talking about, but right. I think that there are, because really, I mean, the court has different kinds of conservatives. So when we talk about they, it's not a they, they're different people. Right, so right. Clarence Thomas, for example, has been up on the ramparts essentially saying, if a precedent is wrong, we should overturn it, period. You know, we shouldn't care if everyone in America is relying on it. We shouldn't mm-hmm. care about any of the other stuff we said. If it's wrong, it should go. So clearly Thomas, who's, I think, enjoying himself for the first time since joining the court, uh-huh. is completely ready to overrule everything he doesn't like tomorrow, and I think probably Samuel Alito along with him. Um, I might even put Neil Gorsuch in that category, because although Gorsuch breaks with his conservative colleagues sometimes, he clearly also doesn't really seem to care if he makes people mad, right? Yeah. And including conservatives. So, um, and then on the other hand, you have Chief Justice Roberts, mm-hmm. who's very concerned about the court's reputation, who's already staked a claim to caring about precedent in the abortion context and outside of it. So, really, the question mark, I think, when it comes to the fate of Roe and other precedents, there are really two question marks, which I would say are Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. Mm. Um, Gorsuch, too, to some extent, because we don't have a ton to go on. Barrett, we don't have much at all to go on other than the fact that she's personally pro-life, which may or may not translate, right? I mean, that's not a perfect predictor of what she's going to do on the bench. And we shouldn't be 100% convinced we know until we actually have some decisions from her. Um, And then Kavanaugh, like I said, who's, we have very little data on when it comes to he's been willing to overturn precedents too but i don't think he's as Uh gung-ho and open about it as thomas i think kavanaugh sort of wants to look like he agrees with roberts about precedent even if he doesn't but i I think that would still you know constrain him some in terms of how he approaches cases boy i would hope so i never never imagined myself kind of rooting for Roberts, but considering everything, he's been more uh, centrist and sensible. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is law professor Mary Ziegler, who's written an article in The Atlantic. The abortion fight has never been about just Roe versus Wade. She's a professor of law and the author of Abortion and the Law in America, Roe versus Wade to the present. We're talking about a case that's coming before the Supreme Court uh, that won't be decided, actually, until uh, June of 2022. That's an interesting point in an election year, which, of course, shouldn't matter, but no doubt will. Uh, Speaking of precedent following the Roe decision, the courts had appeared to be antagonists in general to the anti-abortion side on the issue of personhood 
for fetuses rather than the anti-choice allies of the anti-choice people. I wonder, please say more. What What's changed about that? Um, well, I think the personhood for fetuses has always been what the movement has been interested in. And it's not hard to see this. If you go back to the 60s and 70s, there were lawyers for the right to life movement asking to be named guardians for uh, fetuses or unborn children scheduled right. to be aborted on right. the theory that they were persons. And if you ask them at the time, they would say, you know, we think the courts are going to do are going to help us. So a lot of this was happening in New York, which had voted democratically to expand access to abortion and recognize abortion rights. So at the time, right to lifers or abortion opponents were trying to use the courts to reverse that trend. So really the only reason those arguments faded away was because they weren't helping politically and they weren't really very convenient for the Republican party either because Ronald Reagan very much wanted conservative Christians to vote for him. Yes. But also wanted plenty of, you know, boomers who didn't want to pay taxes, who did not support a ban on abortion to vote for him too. So talking about judicial activism was great because it allowed him to sort of signal he didn't like Roe without committing to fetal rights as much as he, I mean, certainly he talked about fetal rights too, but he didn't really do anything about it. And judicial activism language allowed him to kind of have it both ways. Uh And abortion opponents understood that, you know, they wanted Ronald Reagan. He was had a lot of power to help them, but uh, they also wanted to, um, you know, they wanted to advance their agenda, which ultimately was the recognition of fetal rights. But at the time, they wanted to get done what they could. You know, a half loaf is better than none. Right. Yeah, oftentimes that is the case. I, I, you're, as we talk here, I'm reminded of uh, uh, an interview I did uh, with Catherine Stewart, who wrote The Power Worshippers. And she, in her research, discovered that the, the evangelical right, the people who want to create a religious nationalism in place of a republic tried all different issues and then they found that the abortion issue was the one that connected with people so that's the one they went with it wasn't that they were so committed to that but as part of their wedge to get in and talk and and try to push for religious nationalism which a lot of the uh people in Congress now so actively support, that that's the issue they chose. And it's, it's again, good to uh, know about history. And you mentioned Reagan, of course. The current Republican stance is, is, is I think, a turn away from the uh, Reagan administration's argument that, as you note, an imperial judiciary riding roughshod over American democracy. Current polling is clear that the overwhelming majority supports reproductive rights. Therefore, as you write, talk has turned away from protecting democracy and toward maximizing protection for fetal life. Is this a case where one argument doesn't work, so therefore they try another tack? Is that, you know, can it be reduced to that, do you think? In a way, yeah, I think there was... um... So the early movement's focus was a constitutional amendment, right? So if you think of the Equal Rights Amendment for sex discrimination, after Roe, the argument was, okay, we'll just overrule Roe by constitutional amendment. But anyone who's paid attention to the Equal Rights Amendment knows that that hasn't worked (laughs) in a really long time. I mean, you could have a constitutional amendment that says Friday is better than Monday, and people (laughs) would somehow find a way to destroy it, right? So eventually the anti-abortion movement had a kind of a moment of reckoning in the early 80s when they they had 
Reagan. They had Republicans in control of both houses of Congress. And this constitutional amendment was just going absolutely nowhere. Mm. And so the movement went back to the drawing board and said, okay, if we can't get a constitutional amendment, how do we justify that we've got in bed with the GOP, which not all abortion opponents were cool with. There were some Catholic social justice, younger people who didn't like Ronald Reagan and didn't like what he was doing to the welfare state and just felt icky about the whole thing. And they, and also more importantly, what are we going to do next? Right. If we don't have a constitutional amendment, what's the point? And the answer came after Sandra Day O'Connor joined the court and the court handed down a decision in 1983 on an Akron abortion ordinance And O'Connor wrote a dissent, essentially saying Roe was a bad decision, didn't make a lot of sense. And abortion opponents all read that and thought, that's the plan. The plan is we're aligning with the GOP to get judges. Judges will overrule Roe. And we will make different arguments in state legislatures, in the courts, and in Congress to get that done. So it it really was sort of a matter of what works. which is, frankly, I mean, that's what most social movements are doing. There's nothing really remarkable about that, but it's been tremendously consequential. Mm. Do what works. Imagine, yeah, that's that's how, uh, you know, realistic uh, politically involved people uh, do that. Now, given the big lie that the new Trumpist Republicans, who seem to be a majority of Republicans, which amazes me, given the big lie that they adhere to, that democracy should not be allowed to get in the way of their agenda. Republicans are also curtailing the ability of Americans to pursue policy goals through ballot initiatives. As MSNBC's Steve Bannon writes, examples of assaulting democracy, voter suppression, GOP officials in multiple states, place new hurdles between Americans and ballot boxes. Republican lawmakers have now enacted new voting restrictions in a total of 11 states, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Montana, Utah, and Wyoming. And they're even doing it here in New Hampshire. And they've, they've been at least 148 bills in 38, or 36 states, rather, to dislodge our voting systems. Uh, and... And he says, Bennon adds, in isolation, each of the aforementioned reports is important, but collectively, they create an ugly mosaic. The image is one of a major political party that believes the key to acquiring and maintaining power is less about broadening appeal through the power of ideas and more about rigging the system across multiple fronts to defy the will of the electorate. End of his quote. Do you think... This new strategy of taking away reproductive rights could be part of the assault on democracy itself, because they seem to be so focused on doing everything they can to shut down democracy, because people may vote not the way that the uh, new Republican Party wants them to. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element of that for abortion opponents. I mean, I think that the idea of a right to life has always been more important to them than democracy. Um, I think there's always been a kind of win however you can um, mentality. Um, And I think, so I think that there's certainly part of a similar way of thinking. The other thing I would say is, is a shared element is that since the eighties really, and I mean, more recently it's accelerated, there've been 
I think lots of disagreements between people who support and oppose abortion rights um, about what the reality of abortion is. So abortion opponents, you know, often actually believe abortion causes breast cancer or regret or is unsafe. And they're consuming information from totally different news sources. They're collecting data from entirely different people. There's a sort of alternative factual universe. Mm. And so I think some of, and I mean, some of the people in the abortion debate are involved in issues about voting, like Jim Bopp, who's the uh, general counsel of the National Right to Life Committee, was also the lawyer for True the Vote and for a time was one of those leading the efforts to overturn the election result in November. Um, and I think if you talk to him or you talk to people like him, they, they often really believe the big lie, too. So it's not just I mean, I think there are more cynical people in the GOP who don't who are just using this as a way to, um, you know, to their advantage politically. But I think one of the bigger problems that you see in the abortion debate and outside of it is that people just don't agree on reality anymore. It's not just that they don't agree, you know, what reality means in terms of, you know, rights to abortion or fetal rights. It's they don't even agree on the facts. And that makes it a lot easier to have a push to stamp out what lots of Republicans believe is actual voter fraud, right? I mean, they're not, a lot of the regular rank and file Republican voters are, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, right? They're not thinking of themselves as being manipulated and lied to. And the same thing goes with abortion. So I think that's probably the largest commonality I've seen. It does seem that, uh, that religious nationalism uh, somehow there's so many different factors that part- that contribute to this like assaults on history they there there've been uh, trump had his uh, 1776 requirement uh which basically replaces history with myth with you know what's supposed what what backs up and supports their belief that that now uh the idea of actual democracy and a republican form of government uh, is something that's it's just inconvenient for them when there's something about I mean there, there are people who think that God gave us Trump and they that is more important than what our founders intended which is a republic if we can keep it and now we're finding out I don't know maybe we can't keep it there have been a lot of columnists uh, yeah. who, who say uh, you know this is some serious stuff democracy is really in danger your thoughts yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I think um, when it comes to abortion, I think one thing I see as important is that the people who, who don't agree about abortion, right, who want to ban abortion, there are some of them who don't want to kill democracy. So I think in the immediate aftermath of the insurrection, there were some anti-abortion activists who wrote op-eds saying, you know, we don't, we should disassociate ourselves with Trump. And so I think it's almost incumbent on people who support democracy, even if they think everything else these people are saying is completely terrible, to sort of say, you know, on this, we're on the same team. Um, because there's no, I mean, if the Supreme Court is going to get rid of Roe, the most likely outcome is that we'll all just be fighting about abortion forever, and the Supreme Court will probably eventually change and reinstate abortion rights. And that would all, that would be awful for lots of people. Yes. 
but it's also kind of not that different from democratic politics for a while. I think what we're seeing happen to our democracy more broadly is really disturbing and very different. And so I think people who are, you know, pro-democracy, obviously no abortion opponents are pro-democracy like on about abortion, but they're <laughs> pro-democracy for everything else. And so I think it, it's just generally we should try as much as we can to make support for democracy not a blue-red issue, not a pro-choice, pro-life issue, you know, but try to say that it should be hopefully mm. some people on both sides of the aisle who see the need to roll back some of these trends. It is uh, quite an interesting period in our history. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we are doing what we can to keep democracy alive. The issue we're talking about today is uh, the Supreme Court taking up a case that may affect Roe versus Wade. Our guest today is law professor Mary Ziegler, writes, who wrote in The Atlantic, the abortion fight has never been about just Roe versus Wade. And she's author of many books on the topic, uh, the most recent one, Abortion and the Law in America, Roe versus Wade to the President. And you say... Anti-abortion rights groups may have forgotten the most important lesson of all, though, one that pro-abortion rights groups learned the hard way in the aftermath of Roe. Winning in the Supreme Court gets you only so far. What do you mean by that? Well, I think one thing, I remember the first time I went to see the Supreme Court's uh, papers, um, and uh, it was, I was going through Harry Blackman's files, and huh. he had he had clipped a poll from, you know, around 1972 it was a Gallup poll saying that 70 something percent of all Americans thought that abortion was between a woman and her doctor. And if you read the early passages of Roe, Blackman sort of lists all the reasons abortion was controversial, population control, racism. You know, there was a lot going on that made this an explosive issue even then. And he said, you know, we're going to resolve this free of emotion with constitutional law. And I think he really thought that the way he was writing the opinion would eliminate or at least help to resolve the controversy or yeah. help it simmer down. And, of course, here we are 50 years later. I mean, and I remember, as you said at the opening of the show, progressives saying, oh, this is over. I mean, someone, yeah. Lee Gidding, who was the executive director of NARAL in 1973, said, and I quote, you know, this court has spoken, the case is closed, right? Oh it's like, this is gone. Ah. <laughs> and so now you see uh, right to life saying essentially, oh, if you know, Roe is gone, the case is closed. And we know the court has absolutely zero power to resolve this issue, like mm. none. They're not going to resolve it in state legislatures. They're not going to resolve it in Congress. There'll be a push to expand the court or reform the court. And if that doesn't work, there'll be a longstanding 50-year effort, just like there was on the anti-abortion side, to reinstate abortion rights. So we're in this for the long wow. haul, wow. and anyone paying attention to history should know that. It's ironic to me that the anti-abortion movement is so optimistic about the court, when they themselves, probably more than any social movement, have shown the ultimate powerlessness of the court, right? They, they're the ones proving yeah. my point, and they're the ones <laughs> who seem to have forgotten uh, yeah, well, it's it, you got to remember what you want to remember. I mean, that's what uh, what people depend on, erasing certain history and promoting other uh, myths that take the place of it. And I remember years ago when 
working with the Abortion Rights Action League, we were trying to recruit young women, and they didn't believe. They, it was shocking to me and some of the other senior people, I suppose, that they didn't think it was in danger. I mean, I am a boomer, I'll admit, I acknowledge, some of us are good people, uh, that, uh, I mean, I know people who had to go through back alleys. There was a friend who had to climb up a fire escape and it didn't go well, the, the back alley abortion that she had. It, you know, and, you know, we have the, the other side saying that, well, what about, you know, the fetus, what right to life? Which, which life are they choosing? And as uh, Barney Frank said, the, anti, the pro-life people are pro-life from conception to birth, period. <laughs> as you know, today's Republican Party does not concern itself much with popular majorities in the first place. And uh, Bannon, who I uh, quoted earlier, opines that if Democrats with a capital D and Democrats with a small d fail to appreciate the gravity of the situation, the consequences for our system of government will likely be severe, end of his quote. Given that the right wing is successfully circumventing, doing an end run around democracy uh, by packing the courts to avoid the inconvenience of elections and the will of the people. What options are there for the people? We often, you know, we've believed, many people have believed we're powerless. I don't believe we are. So given that they're doing that by packing the courts, uh, you know, to go around the popular will and elections, what options are there, do you see? Well, I think if we're talking about abortion, there's obviously... Um, lots that progressive states can do in terms of making abortion medication available, in terms of travel to their states and access for people from out of state. Um, I think if we're talking about democracy generally, no one is really seriously at this point like making it illegal to vote. They're making it inconvenient to vote. And one thing, of course, often without, by the way, a ton of data on whether that's actually going to hurt them. Um, some restrictions, for example, on mail-in voting might ultimately hurt GOP voters in places oh, like Florida <laughs> more than, well, I mean, just logically, if you look at who votes uh, by mail in Florida, historically, it's been uh-huh. retirees, who are, you know, and military who are not particularly democratic. But even setting that aside, um, one predictable response to laws that make it harder to vote is to vote, right? I mean, at this point, you can still vote. And I think it, one of the only reasons we didn't have an even more dire effect in 2020 was because Joe Biden's win was big enough that a lot of Republicans were not willing to ignore it directly. So I think voting is more important than ever. Hmm. And like I said, too, I think a willingness to um, look wherever you can for people who will be honest about what's happening to our democracy and in favor of doing something about it, even if they don't agree with you on everything, you know, given the urgency of the moment, making that your issue in certain concepts, in certain contexts. So even though, and finding anyone you can. So even though you, I, I think you're saying, even though they're doing, they've, they've been successfully doing an end round around democracy to, by packing the courts and, and letting, you know, that, particular, you know, stool of the government, uh, that, that third branch, uh, be more, more powerful, increasing their power, that, that we can still 
have democracy anyway, despite their... Yeah, and I think the court's being packed. I mean, if you look, so just to take an example, right? Sure. Trump expected the Supreme Court to say he won. Yep. And it, this argument was so ridiculous that he lost, I don't remember, 60-something times. And even Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito wanted to hear the case on the merits to say it was just that stupid. <laughs> so the thing you can do is if, if you vote and the idea that the people who are opposed to democracy won is just so ridiculous that no one will take it seriously, the courts are not going to go for that. They're not, right? So I think mm. the courts are... There's a certain like base level of plausibility that conservative judges want, even Trump nominees, <laughs> before they will sign on to something. And so as voters, it's our job to make sure there is not that base level of plausibility <laughs> so that there is not. Because that's really I mean, that's really what happened in 2020, that R Rudy Giuliani was, you know, spectacularly incompetent, making arguments that were. You know, something that seemed like they had been pulled from the pages of a satire magazine, and that's what saved things, right? Because there was no, all of the good lawyers were not willing to make ridiculous arguments, and conservative judges, no matter how conservative they were, cared about their reputations, were not willing to sign on to that either. So I think that still helps. So we, again, are not powerless. There is uh, hope that the Supreme Court won't just shut the door on reproductive rights. It seems rather unlikely that they will. I'm so glad we had this conversation. The book is called Abortion and the Law in America, Roe versus Wade to the Present. And our guest uh, is the author of that book, Mary Ziegler. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I hope you're able to listen to the lyrics of this Graham Parker song, Code Hangers. Let's go back to a time Swinging